Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, remember when Les Moonves declared that Donald Trump's candidacy, quote, may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS, close quote. That wasn't a faux pas. It was an operating principle. And we can't be shocked that it's carrying through to coverage of the Democratic primary process, which has foregrounded far more radical ideas and public receptivity to them than corporate elites are comfortable with. We'll take a look at election coverage with Jim Narikas, editor of FAIR.org and FAIR's newsletter Extra. Also on the show, it's not wrong to say that the movement to decriminalize sex work has divided allies, as the New York Times had it, but recent polls show the idea garnering majority public support for perhaps the first time, and the range of groups signed on to a new policy memo, the ACLU and the Women's March, Immigrant Defense Project and Mijente, the Transgender Law Center and Black Youth Project 100, suggests a number of communities looking for a new way forward. The memo, called Decriminalizing Survival, was written by organizer Nina Luo, a fellow at Data for Progress. We'll talk with her about that. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you by the Media Watch Group FAIR. From debates that encourage sparring over substance to evidence-free declarations about electability or momentum to the insistence bordering on gaslighting of the fringiness of ideas that in fact enjoy broad support, corporate media's election coverage would be disappointing at any time. With all that's at stake in 2020, it's a letdown we can ill afford. And a reason, of course, to support independent journalism. Joining us now for a look at the state of reporting on the election is Jim Narikas. He's editor of FAIR.org and our newsletter Extra. He's right here in studio. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jim Narikas. It's very good to be back. All elections are important, but this election is so pivotal. The directions that the country or the country's leadership, the people are going to do what we need to do. But the roads for electoral politics are so marked and opposed. We often talk about what corporate media are doing, not just compared to other media or compared to what they did in the past, but compared to what a democracy needs its journalists to do. You know, I was just wondering, writ large, what do you make of the job journalists are doing in this election cycle? I guess I would say that the corporate media are trying to do the job that they usually do during elections, which is to shepherd the conversation, to guard the parameters of of discussion. And the process is really changing. The way that politics is being done now is different than it's been in my lifetime. I'm 55 years old. And the way that politics is breaking away from the old model where Rich people give money to politicians who follow the interests of those wealthy donors and media treat the people who get that kind of money as the serious people that that need to be listened to. And anyone who's not being funded by the wealthy 
is by definition not serious because they don't have the resources that they need to, to win. And now there are models of politics being developed where people are raising money from the grassroots, in large part by rejecting money from wealthy donors. And people are willing to give money because they, they see that these people are not beholden to an elite. And it, it changes the kind of conversation that we're having. It changes the kind of issues that these candidates can run on. And there's a close alignment between the interests of the corporations that own the media, the corporations whose advertisements fund the media, and the donor class. As the donor class is becoming less and less relevant, corporate media are trying to figure out what their role is now. Yeah. I would say this is the, the most interesting election since I've been following politics professionally. Well, and corporate media almost seem to be in panic mode. They're used to paternalistically saying, oh, you might like this idea, uh, Medicare for all, you know, but it's not possible. And they're used to kind of defining what is possible. And I think it's the breaking apart from their conventional wisdom and what large numbers of people are coming to accept as the possible. It's clear in their treatment of Bernie Sanders, certainly, and also in their welcoming of Michael Bloomberg, their notion of what's practical and what's realistic. If anything, it's just very transparent. It's very out there now. There used to be a, a pretty simple way that media would handle outsiders who were trying to, to break into the process and disrupt the apple cart from the professional politician's point of view, which was to ignore them. You just don't talk about them and they will have no impact on the political conversation. With the rise of social media, largely, it is impossible to successfully ignore people. People will still talk to each other about the candidates that they're interested in, even if the New York Times doesn't say word one about them. That is a disconcerting fact to corporate media. Howard Dean was a candidate who was not a radical disruptor like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, but someone who made the corporate media uncomfortable with the talk he was suggesting of, of bringing people into the process, basically. Right. And his candidacy was shut down by corporate media with something called the Dean Scream, which was a kind of funny noise that Howard Dean made at a, a rally. When talking about momentum or yeah. you know, just an energy kind of a rally. He made kind of a, yeah. a yip. And this was played over and over and over again, like it was the Challenger disaster. And the ridicule, the same ridicule of the corporate media drove him out of the race. And that was the kind of power that they used to have. And they can't Dean Scream people away anymore. In the past few days, we've seen Chris Matthews on MSNBC suggesting that if Bernie Sanders were elected, there would be mass executions in Central Park. And then followed by Chuck Todd talking about how, uh, what was the phrase, digital brown shirts? Digital brown shirts, yeah. This is panic mode. They're frightened by the fact that politicians are running and succeeding without their blessing, you know, with their clearly stated objections. The Democratic electorate has been told in no uncertain terms that Bernie Sanders is not electable. And that is your signal, people, that you should not vote for him because the punditocracy has spoken. It's an interesting hill for them to stake out. There is a lot of polling on the ability of people to be elected, which presumably is what electability means. The pollsters regularly ask, who would you vote for? Trump or Sanders. They've asked this, according to Real Clear Politics website that tabulates polls, 68 times. And 63 of those times, people said 
Bernie Sanders. We'd vote for Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump, which seems to be a sign that he some, has some kind of electability. Even when you build into the question that Trump calls Sanders, quote, a socialist who supports a government takeover of health care and open borders, they still choose Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump. In fact, they were testing different descriptions of Sanders. And when you call him a Democrat, he does worse than when you call him a socialist. <laughs> wow. Just a l slightly worse. Yeah. But the idea that, you know, when people find out that Bernie Sanders is a socialist, you know, that'll be the end for him. Like it's a, some kind of secret that, the, that has been kept from the public. Well, and it just shows the disconnect, you know, that seems more apparent every day between the priorities and even the language of elite journalists as compared to where a whole lot of people are at. You know, the idea that once you say public health insurance, you know, or Medicare for all, that, oh, people are going to be scared off by that. And despite media's best attempts, people are not scared off by that. Well, of course, elections are about ideas, but there's also a lot about process. You ask about why do people feel disconnected from the story. And part of it is things like Iowa. Iowa comes around and it's like, get out your slide rule and your eighth grade civics textbook. And there's sort of this thing that it's just about for nerds. And it gets very complicated, the degree to which it's the will of the people. And yet clearly it's very, very important in the media cycle. Obviously, this is the real process that we're dealing with, and yet it's problematic for various reasons. How, how are journalists doing in kind of illuminating the procedural or process issues of this election? Iowa got bogged down in this interminable count that took several days to determine exactly how many state delegate equivalents each candidate was going to get, which is this kind of formula that they use to translate the votes that people get into how many delegates they get. And state delegate equivalents are an intermediate stage where somehow it bears some kind of relationship to how many delegates you end up getting at the, the national convention. And there was this long period where people were like, oh, don't know who won. You know, it looks like Buttigieg is ahead. But we can't say because it was taking so long for the, the numbers to come out. But it was clear very early on that Sanders had a big lead in actual votes, right. that many more people had voted for him than had voted for Buttigieg, the, the number two candidate. And that didn't matter because really what was important here was the state delegate equivalence. And so that was what they kept going back to. And it was funny because when uh, Sanders said, you know, we actually got more votes and acted like that was a reason for him to, to claim victory. People were like, oh, you know, that's kind of dirty pool because that is not how the game is played. It's really about the, the state delegate equivalents. And then in New Hampshire, suddenly the fact that Buttigieg came sort of close to, to Sanders in the popular vote, that was suddenly very important. You look at these things and you see that Corporate media are not observers of the electoral process. They are participants in the electoral process. And the stories that they tell you about what has happened so far in the race are stories designed to sell you on a narrative. They're, they're not objective accounts of reality. They spend a lot of time talking about the horse race. It makes you think, oh, they must be experts on how elections work. And the fact is they are very often making it up. I was looking at the, the polling averages, and back in December 1st, Sanders was ahead of Buttigieg by five points in the polling averages. And I think they were, at that point, third and fourth in the race. That's a little more than a couple months ago. 
Today, Sanders leads Buttigieg by 12 points in the polling average. And yet it's Buttigieg who has the momentum, according to corporate media. I read a tweet from uh, Jeremy Peters, who's a politics reporter for The New York Times. And he said, Pete, after winning Iowa, is almost beating Bernie in a state Bernie won four years ago by 22 points. Under any normal standard of assessing the Democratic race, Pete would be called a frontrunner. Well, by any normal standard of assessing a race, the person who is in fifth place in the national polling would not be called the frontrunner. Only when you get to decide who you would like to win and label that person the frontrunner would the fifth place person be called the frontrunner. I do see hopefulness in the transparency, if you will, of corporate media showing their priorities and their willingness to ignore things that are big and lift up things that are little uh, in order to sell a certain storyline. What should we be looking for in the next weeks, months? I really do believe that the media will be trying to dean scream Bernie Sanders all the way through the convention and probably to November 3rd. I think that if he is not stopped by one of the other candidates, the media will be his toughest opponent. And I think that people need to cultivate their ability to read the the news critically, to think about what the agenda is behind the reports that you're reading, and learn to discount the media narratives that are trying to create self-fulfilling prophecies that will affect the choices that you have for your democratic decision-making. Just to say, this is, of course, about candidates because it's about the presidential election, but it's about ideas. And when media, corporate media, come out against Senator Sanders, they're coming out against the idea of changing the socioeconomic status quo in a major way in this country. It's not just Bernie Sanders. They would figure out a way to try to come after anyone who was suggesting that kind of change, is my sense. You used to see people talking about the idea of raising taxes as the kiss of death for a candidate. You know, you'd say this person is too liberal to win because they believe in raising taxes. Raising taxes on the wealthy is consistently a popular position. Most people believe that the wealthy have too much money and would like to see them have less of it. I feel like the media are catching on that raising taxes on the wealthy is not the boogeyman that or they used to think it, it was. But you see a focus on Medicare for all and the idea of people losing choice from their health care. I would love to see a poll where someone says, would you like to have free health care paid for by taxes, or would you like to pay thousands of dollars for health care out of your own pocket? Which of those would you prefer? And see just how well thousands of dollars out of your own pocket does in a head-to-head poll. The idea of choice is predicated on the idea that the government health care will be so bad, uh, even paying thousands of dollars for private health care would be, would be preferable. And also the idea that it's a government doctor, you know, as right. opposed to, yeah. you know, being, being administered by the government. It doesn't mean that, you know, some, you know, some civic engineer off the street is going to do your appendectomy, you know. Right. I mean, that all is a, a sort of media-manufactured confusion. I notice that I'm falling into the media-trained habit of talking about government health care and private health care as opposed to public or corporate health care. 
Just to say that the ideas that Sanders and Warren put forward that are things that media presented as third rails that politicians could never do, it's, it's outswept them. It's, it's gone past them. The popularity of those ideas is now acknowledged, and I feel like corporate media are trying desperately to make us think they're not practical, they're not popular, and people just choose to believe their lying eyes. Yeah. It is the big scam of politics, maybe the biggest scam is the idea that the safe, politically wise thing to do is to support policies that maintain the income of the wealthy, as if that's what the median voter is looking for, is to make sure that the wealth of the rich is not threatened. And that is a complete misunderstanding of the actual sociology of America. And it's based on the idea that there's been a veto power exercised by donors and exercised by the media, what kind of policies you could propose with donors being edged out by some candidates and the media more and more not having that ability to dictate what the terms of the debate are, we're seeing that these formerly taboo proposals for like minimum wage that actually keeps pace with productivity or for a wealth tax that actually redistributes income from the upper reaches where it's been concentrating for the past 50 years. These policies are on the agenda, whether the, the corporate media like it or not. We've been speaking with FAIR editor Jim Narikas. You can find decades of his work on FAIR.org. A new national poll found a majority of U.S. voters, and two-thirds of those aged 18 to 44, support decriminalizing sex work. It seems to reflect an evolving reframing of societal understanding of sex work and sex workers, away from ideas about vice and morality toward more clear-eyed questions of labor protection, precarity, and humanity. That reframing, in turn, seems to reflect an effort to talk with sex workers rather than just talk about them. Nina Luo is an organizer and writer and a founding member of Decrim New York and Survivors Against SESTA. She's also a fellow at Data for Progress and author of the new report, Decriminalizing Survival. She joins us now by phone from here in town. Welcome to Counterspin, Nina Luo. Thank you for having me. Can I ask you to start, as the report does, with some clarification of what and who is encompassed in the term sex trade? People are engaging in the sex trade when they exchange sexual services for money, housing, food, drugs, health care, any other kind of resource. People can do sex work for a small amount of time, for a long amount of time. It can be their primary or supplemental source of income. So it's really varied, and a lot more people are engaged in sex work than people realize. And there also is a spectrum of, of choice involved. Yeah, absolutely. We say people trade sex on a spectrum of choice, circumstance, and coercion. And the choice bucket, you have people who are doing sex work free of basically any pressure, economic or otherwise. And the circumstance bucket, which is where most people are, it's a combination of factors that make sex work the best choice for you or the best way for you to survive. So maybe you have a big health care bill. Maybe you're currently homeless and you're trading sex for shelter. You have a disability, which means you can't do a job or you're standing up nine hours a day. Or you're trans and you're experiencing a lot of workplace discrimination and getting fired because of your gender identity. All kinds of things that make sex work not the ideal option in sort of the ideal world, but 
the option that's keeping you safe and alive right now. And then you have the last bucket, which is coercion, where people are forced into the sex trade through violence, fraud, threats, and that is also known as trafficking in the sex trade. Human trafficking is a global phenomenon, and a lot of it happens not just in sex work, but also in agriculture, manufacturing, domestic work, in prisons. And so when we talk about sort of the problems of coercion in the sex industry, we're really talking about exploitation of people who are vulnerable in general rather than just specifically sex workers. I wanted to ask you first about the current state of law, you know, as it, as it plays out in reality. Why is it so deeply in need of change? I think it's really important for us to understand the debate about decriminalization is actually not a debate about sex work. It's a debate about what does criminalizing people and putting people in jail get us and what does it get for them. Undoubtedly, there are bad things that happen in the industry, but our government's policy on the industry is only making things worse for people. In every state, sex work is criminalized, except for Nevada, where you have a very narrow system of legalization, where there's a couple counties that have brothels, and you have to work in the brothels in order to be engaged in legal sex work. But everywhere else in the U.S., it's fully criminalized, which means selling sex, buying sex, living with a sex worker, providing services to a sex worker, such as doing security or like driving a sex worker around, advertising, whether online or in public spaces, that's all criminalized. And then you have a number of charges that also allow police to profile people that they think are doing sex work. In New York, for example, there's a charge called the loading for the purpose of the prostitution. That means that police can look around in public spaces and decide who they think is just occupying public space for the purpose of prostitution. In 2018, an overwhelming majority of the people who were arrested were Black and Latinx, I think 91%, and 80% of people arrested were identified as female. And the number is probably actually higher because a lot of police will misgender trans women as men when they arrest them. When we're talking about criminalization, we're not just talking about specific charges, we're also just talking about targeting an entire population of people, sex workers, trans women of color, people who use drugs, people experiencing homelessness that we consider to be undesirable in public space. The process of police harassment and then arrest and then arraignment and then either jail or like a coercive diversion program that is basically still going to court for like a long period of time. And then sometimes having criminal records that impact your employment and your housing and also potentially getting deported if you're an immigrant or a migrant. That entire process is incredibly disruptive to people's lives. As long as the trade is criminalized, you're going to continue to see the consequences of being criminalized, magnifying the reasons that people are trading sex in the first place. Well, it's kind of remarkable to see the societal shift that we're seeing as the poll numbers reflect, and and the fact that young people seem to see clearly that law enforcement is just not the answer to every situation that we're trying to address. But it's really a lot of, there's a lot of organizing going on. This is an organizing victory, this change in opinion, isn't it? I think it absolutely is. You have awesome grassroots movements led by 
people in the sex trade, led by trans women of color, led by immigrants, most visibly in New York and D.C. for decriminalization, but also popping up in other cities and states. For young people, it's pretty simple. You either have done sex work or you know someone who has because people are truly in economically desperate situations like the student loan crisis, the healthcare situation, the fact that 13% of Americans know someone who's died because they couldn't afford healthcare. Like, that's just a reality for people. It's much harder to stigmatize sex work when you know someone who has done sex work because they are struggling. And also, like, young people aren't looking to the traditional sort of moral or religious institutions for political direction. And there's been a lot of awesome anti-policing organizing done by movements like Black Lives Matter. And so the question then shifts from how can the law and order approach address or eradicate sex work to how are resources divided up in our society and why are people trading sex for survival, right? I think this is like why the question is actually so deeply controversial and difficult for people to deal with is that it immediately forces people to reconcile with the fact that racial, gender, and other forms of oppression marginalize people to the point where they're actually trading sex to survive. And that's really, really uncomfortable for people and really hard to reconcile with. I'm just trying to puzzle through things like this Washington Post editorial, The Wrong Move for the Progressive Movement, where they say folks who argue for decriminalizing sex work say that bringing people out of the shadows will mean better protections. And then they come back with... What's wrong with that view is that it buys into the myth of prostitution as a victimless crime, glossing over the harsh realities, abuse from clients and pimps, commonplace drug use, psychological and physical trauma of sex work. I saw this elsewhere where they were saying folks who argue for decriminalizing sex work have a they just have a a Pollyanna view of, of sex work as just the happy hooker and don't see that there are actually problems involved in it. I don't understand why continued criminalization is seen as a way of solving the dangers and the problems that can be certainly involved in sex work reasonable discourse around what is the best policy to reduce harm when folks are accusing the sex workers and trafficking survivors that lead the decriminalization movement of presenting a happy hooker narrative, then it's really hard to have an actual discourse, right? Because so many of the folks that we organize with talk about their experiences of coercion and trafficking in the industry and still know that decriminalization would have helped them and will continue to help people who are in the same situation right now. I really challenge the view that criminalization is a good approach moving forward when it's what we've had for 100 years and the U.S. has an absolutely thriving underground sex trade, whereas in countries that have decriminalized, like New Zealand and Australia, you've seen People in the sex trade better able to access health services, better able to access the justice system, have labor protections, right? Like, at the end of the day, decriminalization is not the end-all, be-all. The fact of the matter is, whether it's criminalized or decriminalized, some people are trading sex to survive. So then the larger question is, what are the policy solutions that we can move, whether it's the home guarantee or a job guarantee, that can put people in positions and elevate them out of, like, economically vulnerable positions where they no longer have to trade sex to survive. That's, like, the thing that I'm interested in talking about, which is sort of moving beyond criminalization, but unfortunately have to get beyond the idea that somehow war on sex work, like the war on drugs, is, like, an effective way to deal with what's going on. 
We've been speaking with Nina Luo, fellow at Data for Progress. You can find the report, Decriminalizing Survival, online at dataforprogress.org. Nina Luo, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, they're on FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.